Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So Cass, I am beyond excited for our fashion history mystery today. Um, Obviously, if you are listening to this episode at this point, you already know what the title is. Um, We are going to explore the origins of cat eye glasses. And listener Stacia Potter submitted this topic to us some time ago, and I'm really pleased to have revisited this request recently because I had considered it for a fashion history mystery episode last season. But then I kind of ran into a standstill because I was having a hard time finding this term cat eye used in the fashion press. (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of funny because we rely so much on our historic databases. But yes, dress listeners, sometimes even they too fail us. No, or, or perhaps I fail them <laughs> because the fail was actually the result of my using the wrong terminology for the period. And once I discovered that the styles at the styles launch that they were called Harlequin glasses, not cat eye glasses. Well, let's just say that I was not exactly prepared for the can of worms which I was about to open up. (laughs) So the incredible story that we're going to tell today may actually be less a little bit about the style of glasses themselves and more about the extraordinary life story of the woman who invented them. Yeah, because today we're going to bring you the incredible story of Altina Shanasi or Altina Sanders, and Altina Barrett, plus Altina Carey. And let's not forget about Altina Miranda. (laughs) (laughs) And no, these were not her laundry list of shifty criminal aliases, but rather, as you may have guessed, dress listeners, the number of times she married. To say that Altina or Tina to her friends had a zest for life could be the understatement of the century. Yes, she was actually born in 1907 into some pretty spectacular circumstances. Her father, Morris Shinazi, was a self-made millionaire many, many times over, and he had left his home in Turkey at the age of 15. He moved to Egypt, where he began working on the docks, and there he met and was kind of quasi-adopted by a Greek tobacco merchant who had lost his own son, who had been about the same age. And when Morris turned 30, his father mentor really encouraged him to seek his fortune abroad, and that is when Morris moved to the United States in 1890. Morris had been learning the ins and outs of the tobacco trade at this point for the previous 15 years, so it was natural that he relied on this expertise once he reached America. And it was actually not long before this Shanasi name became known in the industry because he actually invented and patented some of the earliest cigarette rolling technology. Yeah, and his cigarette rolling machine was actually exhibited at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, which is very cool. And you better bet it wasn't long before Morris and his brother, Solomon, who had now joined him in New York, were producing ready-rolled cigarettes 
at a breathtaking industrial pace for the mass market. And their company was really noted for their use of Turkish tobacco, because of course they were from Turkey, rather than American tobacco sourced from Virginia. So their product was very distinctive on the market, even after um, many of their competitors copied or knocked off their cigarette rolling technology. And Cass, this multi-million dollar empire that was built by the Shinazi brothers is really an immigrant success story par excellence. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so in 1909, the Shinazi family moves into their brand new (laughs) 12,000-square-foot, 35-room marble mansion on Riverside Drive in Upper Manhattan. And this custom abode was designed by the same architect who designed Carnegie Hall in all of its decadence. If you've ever been there, it's so incredible. And we mention this only because we want to help you really to begin to understand this lavish lifestyle into which Altina was born. And despite their opulent surroundings, things were not exactly bright on the home front for the women in this family. Morris was apparently obsessively controlling of his wife and three daughters, and after his repeated philandering, his wife, Lorette, packed up her daughters and household staff and relocated to an entire floor of the Plaza Hotel for an extended period. You know, as one does. You just (laughs) rent an entire floor of the Plaza Hotel. (laughs) But Altina, growing up, attended boarding school, and... At that time, she was the only Jewish student at a staunchly Episcopalian academy, which of course was not exactly without its difficulties. And in an effort to gain independence from her father, Tina entered into an early marriage with Morris Sanders, a young Yale-educated architect who happened to work for the world-renowned architect Eli Kahn. And unfortunately, her first marriage was not a happy one. Her architect husband turned out to be manic-depressive, and Altina never envisioned her life to be limited solely to the role of wife and mother. She says specifically that she dreamed of being both an artist and a scientist. With more than the necessary determination and financial means to support herself, and at this point she had two young sons as well, Altina divorced Sanders and in the process began an affair with her divorce lawyer, Mac Brondwin, who would become her long-term lover. The only problem with this, April, is that at this time he was actually married to one of her closest friends. Yeah. No go there. Not cool. Not cool. (laughs) So um, when eventually this relationship with Mac soured, Tina turned to her love of art as solace, and she dabbled for a little while in retail window dressing, and and at the same time, she was taking classes at the Art Students League in New York City, and and she was a natural cast. I mean, art came really easy to her, and during the 1930s, she became quite an accomplished sculptor and painter who was really working in this cubist genre. And I don't know if I've ever actually talked about this on the show, but um, in a former life, (laughs) before I was a fashion historian, I was actually a contemporary art gallerist for nearly a decade. And I have to just say that Altina's work is no joke. It is truly exceptional. She, She just had that kind of thing. She had this raw, innate talent. She had vision. She had a voice. And all of those things, um, that's what we look for in gallerists when we're, when we're looking to represent someone. Yeah, and absolutely Google her work, which I did because it's so cool. She has like these kind of like sculptural chairs almost. So you're kind of sitting on a person, um, but they're like breathtakingly beautiful and so unique. I've never really seen anything like them. So definitely check out her work. 
She called them characters. <laughs> They're fabulous. <laughs> Char characters. Characters. <laughs> Tita's entree into the realm of high fashion came about roundabout uh, by way of happenstance. In her own words, she says, One day I was walking from a movie with some guy, I don't remember his name, and I passed a shop of an optician, and I saw this oil painting with glasses glued onto the face, and I thought, that is really so ugly. <laughs> and Dorothy Parker was writing verses, you know, men don't make passes at girls that wear glasses. So I thought something better could be done than just these awful glasses that look like the time of Benjamin Franklin. And so I thought, what would be good on a face? I thought about a mask, a harlequin mask. They really beautify a face, end quote. And a harlequin, of course, is that character from the Commedia dell'arte. Yeah. And Tina went to work on her idea. Um, she went home and started cutting out various shapes of paper and then testing them on faces in magazines or on photographs. And once she settled on a shape that resembled the slanted shape of cat eyes, it, she, she was like, this is it. This seems to glamorize nearly every face shape. And after that, she just really hit the pavement trying to promote and peddle her new design aesthetic. And she says, quote, I first went to the big companies, the American Optical Bausch & Lomb, and another company called Ray-Ban, you know, just, just Ray-Ban. <laughs> um, and she says, they had the same reaction. But of course, I didn't see the top people. They would say to me, well, when we're ready to sell eyeglasses to lunatic asylums, we'll let you know. <laughs> Undeterred, Tina decided to cut out the industry middleman and went straight to retailers. She says, then finally, I went to a shop called Lugines on Madison Avenue. It was a very fancy shop. I spoke to the head salesman and he waved me aside. And you know how accidental life is. At that moment, the owner of the shop, Mr. Lugine, came in and he saw the photo and said, come with me. And so I went with him to his office and he really liked them and said, I really think you have something. Then he said, I like it and I want an exclusive on these for at least six months. And I said, absolutely. And I mean, I had no other offers. And this is when the fad for Harlequin glasses exploded onto the American fashion scene. Um, it was announced in the pages of the November 1939 issue of Vogue, quote, Specs appeal. <laughs> harlequin glasses. Fascinating as the harlequin mask, which inspired their design, these dramatic new frames give eyes an upswept, young, alluring appearance. Optically correct, even for bifocal lenses, and a wide variety of chic colors to match your costume or your mood. Harlequin frames come with a special case, $8, exclusively in New York at Lugine, Inc. And cast that $8 would have been approximately about $150 adjusted for inflation today. And the immediate success of Harlequin, a.k.a. cat eye frames, may have been spurred by its enthusiastic embrace by New York's artistic avant-garde and intellectual elite. Celebrated playwright and later congresswoman and U.S. ambassador Claire Booth Luce was one of its earliest adopters. Okay, Claire was such a badass. I'm definitely going to figure out a fashion angle on her so we can do a full episode on her. <laughs> We've mentioned this film, The Women, on the show before, and this film was an adaptation of her 1936 smash Broadway hit of the same name. I, I'm digressing about Claire here a little bit, but who were some of the other early adopters of the Harlequin look, Cass? 
I mean, where do we start? Peggy Guggenheim was a big fan. Yes, the Peggy Guggenheim, tastemaker and art collector extraordinaire. There was also comedian Lucille Ball, who wore Harlequin glasses frequently later on on the TV show I Love Lucy in the 50s. Yeah, not to mention that this look was really a go-to for fashion editors during the 1940s. And we're going to hear more about that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. So, Cass, fashion editors made a beeline for not only the novelty of the Harlequin style, but also its super smart dynamic because it was a bit brassy and maybe even perceived at the time as being a bit imperious. And this fact was not apparently lost on the New York City cab driver who complained to Vogue um, in 1941 in an article entitled How Men See Us. He says, quote, Open-toed shoes are dreadful. I like short skirts and funny hats. I like lots of color on women. Don't like those crazy Harlequin eyeglasses that make women look like they are Japanese spies. Ooh. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a, a, a ton to unpack there. Yeah, perhaps even more so when you learn from the writer, when she mentions later in the bit, that she was actually wearing Harlequin glasses when the cab driver she was interviewing said this to her. And, you know, this was like in an official on-the-record interview for Vogue. Rude. I know. I have lots of immediate reactions to this statement. I mean, first, why is this editor interviewing a cab driver about women's fashion anyways? The most obvious answer, I guess, is at this time that fashion magazines are, you know, in part responsible for or complicit in encouraging women to dress for men. And this article kind of confirms that their opinions matter, I guess. And also, second, hello, racism. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Just a little bit of context. This article was published in April of 1941. So that's eight months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. However, and, you know, the U.S. had not yet officially entered World War II. And yet, based on this quote, it seems there was already a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment brewing stateside. Yeah, and that all played out in an epic fail on the part of the U.S. government when they passed Executive Order 9066, which resulted in one of the most egregious violations of American civil rights in our nation's history. Beginning in 1942, uh, about 117,000 persons of Japanese descent who were living on American soil were rounded up and forced into internment camps for the duration of the war in order to prevent espionage, Um, never mind the fact that the majority of them were officially U.S. citizens. Yeah, many of them born in this country, Um, Mm -hmm. but um, really not a great moment for U.S. history. Uh, So in this statement by the cab driver, we're really glimpsing the systemic racism of this era. So not that Vogue acknowledged that, I'm sure, um, but systemic racism is racism that is so deeply ingrained into the very DNA of any given society that it escapes even a second thought or questioning. Agreed. Um, And Cass, this article is chock full of other vitriolic comments about women's fashion. They interviewed one business executive who said, quote, very few women can wear slacks well. They're not built for it. And almost no one can wear shorts after they are 16. Uh, okay. Uh, That's creepy. Why are you creeping on (laughs) 15-year-old girls, sir? Or how about the policeman who said he disliked, quote, women who dress to attract attention either by overdressing or ignoring style 
altogether. So lots and lots of opinions here, folks, just, of course, underscoring something we talk about quite often, how women's bodies and fashions have been policed historically, this case literally, perhaps. (laughs) But I have to know, April, what exactly was the point of this article? While we can look back now and cringe at these sort of comments, it would appear to me that Vogue is validating them or at least giving them credence, right? I mean, men's opinions did matter at this time. Well, let's just bring this all back to the Harlequin glasses. Um, Their adopters were really breaking with tradition. They were wearing something that was entirely new, and they were embraced by many forward-thinking women who were in positions of relative power at the time. So in many ways, wearing them was a pushback against this quote-unquote man's world way of thinking of the era. And at the conclusion of this article, Vogue kind of sums it up by saying, here's what men say, but why do they think that we dress for them? We ultimately dress for ourselves. So um, they kind of summed it all up, and in the end, it had a little bit of a feminist slant on it. Who knew that eyewear could spark a micro mini revolution? (laughs) (laughs) But that's just what Harlequin glasses did. So much so that in 1940, Tina was awarded an American Design Award by Lord and Taylor. The contest, which stipulated that, quote, one or more designs by any winner must have been on the market for the first time since 1939, that winners must have made their designs for the consumer market, and that the work of each winner, in the opinion of the jury, must have definitely influenced the industry with which he or she is affiliated. In addition to Tina, that year a shoe designer and two industrial designers also won the American Design Award, which was accompanied by a $1,000 cash prize, which is the equivalent of a little over $18,000 today. Not that Tina really needed the money, because she didn't. (laughs) Her father had passed away at this time, leaving behind um, what would have been a $75 million estate. And with some of that money, around the same time, she was actually aiding Jewish citizens who were wishing to escape Austria. And Cass, ultimately, she aided 13 people fleeing the Nazi regime, one of whom would later become the love of her life and her second husband. As Altina's son noted, she quote-unquote lost her heart to Eric Barrett, a Jewish doctor and lawyer who unfortunately was diagnosed with tuberculosis shortly after his arrival in the U.S. Eric was in a period of recovery for a couple of years, and once he recovered sufficiently, the two married and moved to Coldwater Canyon, California, where the weather suited his fragile state. And there, with the continued popularity of her Harlequin glasses throughout the 40s and into the 50s, Tina opened her own factory to produce her designs. During an interview she gave in the 90s, she really talks about the factory, saying it was about 3,000 square feet, and how at that time um, she was really sympathizing with the state of race relations in the country. Uh, She actively hired African-American employees, for instance, at a time when segregation was legally mandated in the United States. Yeah. And her stint in manufacturing eventually came to a halt following a visit from local mobsters. And she says, quote, (laughs) I know. I mean, the story just keeps getting wilder and wilder as we go on. Um, She says, she says, explaining what happened, she says, Two big, thuggy-looking guys came in one day and said, Well, miss, how are you getting along? And I said, Well, I think I'm getting along all right. And they said, Well, I think you need a little protection, don't you? So I said, No, what do I need? 
And she says, I wasn't completely stupid. I knew what they were talking about. And then they said, well, you know, someone could break your windows. Who knows what could happen? (laughs) So we are willing to help you out. And she says... They said, we'll come back again. Um, But she says that scared her. And and she says, well, I don't really like running the factory. I don't like clocking people in and clocking them out and going around doing production, getting salesmen. There's a whole world about this that really didn't appeal to me. And all of this coincided with a decline in her husband, Eric's health, and he actually passed away in the 1950s. And after this, Tina poured her grief into her artwork and later film. Her documentary on the artist George Groves, under whom she had studies, was even nominated for an Academy Award in 1960. I mean, she was a dynamo, really. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And through a friend at her art school, um, she met her very much younger third husband, Charles Carey. And I just want to interject here that I'm pretty sure that friend at art school was Mamie Eisenhower Cass, who would, of course, go on to be the future first lady of the United States. That's that's the kind of company (laughs) that Altina was keeping at this time. Yes, and she would keep company with plenty more politicians in coming days as her new husband, Charlie, started working for the State Department. And that meant that the couple relocated to D.C. in the 1960s. There, Altina became a darling of the D.C. art scene, and gallerists flocked to represent her. And as I mentioned earlier, she's especially known for her sculptural benches and chairs. Her work was even the focus of a segment on Good Morning America in 1979. And about her relationship with her husband, Charlie, she remarked that she, quote, wasn't terribly in love with him, but he was a nice person. Ouch. I hope nobody <laughs> ever says that about me. I know. <laughs> um, and maybe maybe the fact that she wasn't entirely smitten with him was the reason why a hot young friend of her masseuse cut her eye. Um, Celestina Miranda had left Cuba, one of approximately 125,000 Cubans who had fled Cuba as part of the Muriel boat lift in 1980. And so here's Celestino, hot young Cuban guy, refugee in need of a job. So Tina hired him as a studio assistant to help her with all the heavy lifting that was inherent to a lot of her stone sculpture work. So it's been said that of Tina... (laughs) that her creative drive was only rivaled by her sexual appetite. (laughs) (laughs) And she made quick work of seducing the handsome young Cuban who sported a signature ponytail. Charlie and her divorced, she married Celestino, and the couple continued to be a present in the DC art world until, sadly, Celestino developed cancer. Yeah, and at this time, her ailing husband's greatest wish was to be surrounded by many, many animals because he felt that they had a healing presence on him. So they decided to relocate to Santa Fe, and there they established a farm full of goats, chickens, etc. And Cass, their favorite goat, Bebe, apparently even lived in the house with them. <laughs> Can you imagine living in a house with a goat? <laughs> Sean Wait, loves goats. <laughs> weren't you, you just texted me yesterday that you were chasing a goat down the street. Yes, I live in a kind of a farm village in New Mexico, and I'm surrounded by animals. And I've caught many dogs, but never a goat. And yesterday, <laughs> yes, I tracked down and chased a goat. So that, that was my day yesterday. <laughs> was the goat lost? <laughs> the goat was lost, but we found its home. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> 
Into the late 90s, Altina shared this idyllic life with Celestino, who had recovered from a stint of cancer. Each day, they cared for their farm animals and walked down the hill, hand-in-hand hand, to their art studio, where they developed a deeply connected artistic practice. Celestino describes their relationship as artistic and spiritual soulmates, which is so sweet. Um, their sculptural works were celebrated in the Santa Fe art scene and graced the home of many collectors still today, so I'll have to keep my eyes open. Yeah. So with her husband by her side, Altina passed away from natural causes at the age of 92. And I have to say, this is a life well-lived and well-loved by any measure. So, Stacia, I don't think either of us suspected that your inquiry into the history of cat eyeglasses would take us down this path into an exploration into the life of Altina Shinazi. But there you have it, dress listeners. And also, I should mention that there is a wonderful documentary called Altina on Amazon if you would like to learn more about her life, her loves, and her artistic vision. And it has some really, really fun film footage of her from the 1920s, which is very interesting because home movies from that era are incredibly rare. Yeah, and I and I just checked out the trailer on the internet because there's a whole website dedicated to that movie. So definitely I will be checking that out in the future. And wow, what a fascinating backstory to the cat eye styles that remain adored to this very day. And we should mention that it is International Women's Month. There are so many amazing women behind the clothes we all wear, April. And this episode reminded me about our poodle skirt episode and its inventor, Julie Charlotte. I mean, just so many incredible stories that we have no idea about and will only continue to discover and share. So check out these past episodes. And you know what? I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider putting a cat eye into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. If you would like to submit your own query for a future fashion history mystery, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. This is also our Twitter handle. And please tune in this Tuesday for our full length episode. Last but never, ever least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. Catch you Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.